us in person. Uh, those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you're here. And listen, I'll say again what I've said before. Um, we're all growing impatient with this uh, virus and all the associated um, uh, ways in which it's uh, impacting our lives. And everybody's going to do this at their own pace, you know. Um, our services are open. You're welcome to join us in person, but we want you to, um, we want you to do this uh, at your own pace. We want you to stay safe above all. And so um, as much as we eager, we long for face-to-face -face embodied uh, fellowship to return sooner rather than later, uh, yet we're going to remain patient, right? So, um, so yeah, so there's that. Okay, so very exciting for me, and at least for hopefully for some. Uh, this is new series day. It's always very exciting. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, NFL draft day, Super Bowl Sunday, first day of deer season for some people. I'm not a deer hunter myself. Uh, but new series day is like right up there uh, for me for, uh, with all those others. And so this is new series day. And so I want to spend uh, a little bit of time kind of with the headline, kind of what, what we're doing. And um, some of us have talked about this for a long time. Um, I have been a um, kind of an evangelist for this book um, written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He um, was chief rabbi for Britain. He passed away just this last year, uh, tragically. Um, well, I mean, tragic for me because I've come to love the guy, his work, his writing. Um, I've stalked podcasts for any and every time Rabbi Sachs is being interviewed and so on. Um, and so I've been kind of an evangelist for this book that he wrote uh, a few years ago. The name of the book is um, Not in God's Name, subtitle Confronting Religious Violence. So with several of you, I've, we've had kind of this little bit of an ongoing, and other friends of mine, kind of an ongoing conversation uh, about this book. And uh, it has been my desire to really just do um, a series of Sundays where I am just unapologetically going to pass along to you as best I can the work of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on this topic. And so, among other things, consider this my blanket attribution to him uh, for his work, since I may not refresh my attribution to him at each point along the way in our study. Um, but uh, I just want to say again, I'm very grateful for the work of Rabbi Sachs, and I hope that you'll seek it out directly uh, yourself. You could get the book and uh, read that book as we study along, and you'd be like ahead of the class even. So, um, and so you can, you can also take, uh, take a gauge about how well I'm doing at tracking along with his thoughts. So, um, so that's where we're going to be uh, for the next several weeks. And, you know, I, I, I will eventually, even this morning, I will point your memory to a few examples of religious violence, but I realize um, that none of us really needs that. We're all, I, I think we're all aware uh, that we have a problem here, um, spanning throughout the ages, from as far back as you can think, all the way through until today, people of faith in God have indeed engaged in violence that was not held in check or bridled by their faith, but rather to the contrary that in, in some way, shape, or form, it seems as if in these instances, certainly the instances that we're going to uh, be focused on, it seems like the perpetrators of these uh, religious violence in some way felt that their faith was somehow in accord with the violence being, being committed. This has been true across faith traditions, uh, not only within Christianity, also within Judaism and, of course, Islam. Uh, these are the three great world religions that all um, inherit from Abraham. Uh, but also this pattern, phenomenon, uh, continues in other faith traditions as well. In fact, in summary, religious violence can be found across the spectrum of the faiths, faith traditions of the world. Now, in this study, I'm going to be focused on religious violence among what are what are called the Abrahamic faiths. That is, uh, in order: Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, but I'll be focused in particular on Christianity, of course, for obvious reasons. I mean, that is our domain. That's our 
place of shared conversation. And so with that, confronting religious violence and and all of us, again, I think all of us are all too aware that this is a problem, even though I am going to point your memory to some examples. But first, I just want to start with kind of a high level um, uh, in the affirmative, what in fact is the faith of Abraham. A um, couple of quotes here. Here's a quote from Blaise Pascal that'll help us along the way. He said this, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And somebody said, mm. here's another quote. The time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. That's a quote from Jesus. Here's the reality. When religion turns people into killers, God weeps. Always. Every time. That's what, in fact, the book of Genesis tells us. That is what God reveals to us. We're approaching this as Christians, who see the full self-revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what God tells us in his full self-revelation to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In particular, on Good Friday, what we see is who God is, is he's, he's someone who would rather die than retaliate against his enemies. That's the reality of Good Friday. But back to Genesis, think about it, just kind of in your mind, compressing together the first few Chapters after God makes human beings in his own image and likeness, he then sees this rapid-fire succession of tragedy. The first two humans disobey the first command. The first human child commits the first human murder. And then within a very short period of time, I think six chapters the way we have it organized, there's the simple and sad statement, the world was filled with violence. And we read right there in that same chapter, Genesis chapter 6, verse, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, uh, a poignant, brilliant statement. It says this, and the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, listen to this, and it grieved him to his heart. This Hebrew construction is translated variously by different English translators of the Bible, but it wouldn't be improper to say that the meaning of the original Hebrew here is that it broke God's heart. God grieved over the violence. Here we are only six chapters into the Bible, and we've already discovered two critically important facts, facts that are, have been far too often either ignored or forgotten. And it's this, it's human beings who have filled the world with violence. And secondly, human violence breaks the heart of God. Our violence against one another causes God to weep. Listen, when, when people commit violence against one another, it always breaks the heart of God. It always causes God to weep. But far too often, as we know, from Genesis chapter 6 onward <laughs> um, throughout the ages, far too often, people have killed in the name of the God of life, People have waged war in the name of the God of peace. People have hated the other in the name of the God of love. People have practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion. My hope is that for us through this study, and, and indeed way beyond us, is that we would begin once again, I'll say, to see the irony in all of this, and then move from there to do some of the difficult work that um, Rabbi Sachs is trying to lead us through uh, in this study. Um, and when we see these things happen, war in the name of the God of peace, hatred in the name of the God of love, cruelty in the name of the God of compassion. When we, when we see these things happen, when these things happen, listen, you can be sure, God always speaks. He's always speaking a word. And sometimes, as we know from the ministry of the, of the prophets, sometimes God speaks in a still, small voice. 
And because that voice is still and small, sometimes it's hard to hear beneath the clamor of those who claim to be speaking so loudly on God's behalf. But the word that God speaks, the word that he always speaks, is simply this, not in my name. Not ever. Let me give you one more big kind of big picture snapshot and then we'll move back into the uh, details. Going way back, like Genesis way back, religion in the form of polytheism, the worship of multiple multiplicity of pantheon it would be known later of gods religion as polytheism entered the world as a validation and vindication of human power human power structures um, religion that is to say originally served as kind of like this cosmic justification for the total rule of the state in that case through tyrants, kings, pharaohs, emperors, and so on. And the rationale would be something like this. Why is there hierarchy on earth? It's because there's hierarchy in heaven. That's the reason there's hierarchy on earth. Just as the sun rules the sky in the same way, Pharaoh rules the realm, or the king rules the realm, or the emperor rules the realm. When, when, when some oppress others, when the many are ruled over by the few, when entire populations are turned into slaves. This was all to defend the sacred order, the order of the gods, which is written into the very fabric of reality. And so polytheism, talking ancient history, polytheism then served as this cosmological justification and vindication of hierarchy in society. Even the pyramids of Egypt, many archaeologists and historians affirm, even the, the pyramids of Egypt with their physical structure being broad at the base and very small and narrow at the top served as this visual reminder of the hierarchy both in heaven and on earth. As it is in heaven, so it is on earth. Hierarchy and domination structures in heaven and therefore hierarchy and domination structures on earth. In this way then, just put simply, religion was little more than a robe of sanctity draped over what was in reality the naked pursuit of power. That's how religion functioned in polytheism. And it was into this world, into that religious context that Abraham and his entirely new vision of faith, Abrahamic monotheism it's called in fancy speak. In that sense then, Abrahamic monotheism emerged, emerged as a deep critique and a deep subversion and a sustained protest of religion as it, as it had existed for the entire known memory of the other inhabitants of the earth. Think about it. Here are some of the basic claims of the faith of Abraham. And these are audacious, startling, stunning claims considering the cultural context in which Abraham emerged and learned to do faith. The reality of domination systems, oppression fully justified by the various religious imaginations of the earth. Think about it. Some of the basic claims of Abrahamic monotheism um, the Hebrew scriptures, as we know, the Old Testament. Every human being, regardless of their color, their culture, their class, or their creed, every single human being is created in the image and likeness of God and is, and is incalculably, whatever, I missed that one, precious as a result. That's one. Here's the second one. In fact... The faith of Abraham insists. In fact, the supreme divine power, far from being a justification for things like oppression and slavery, in fact, the supreme divine power actually intervened in history to liberate these supremely powerless people from slavery and domination. Here's the third one. A society... Abraham's faith insists 
a society is judged by the way it treats those on the bottom of its society. The weakest, the most vulnerable members of its society are actually the most important members of the society. That's what Abraham insists because of his growing knowledge of the one true God. All of life is sacred, Abraham insists, and his descendants insist. Murder is both a crime and a sin against God, who is the author and giver of life. Think about this. Between and among people, Abraham insists, there is to be a covenant, a covenant bond of goodness, faithfulness, justice, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and love. That is your truly God-given blueprint for how it is that you organize yourselves and your societies. In other words, that's the blueprint for how we do politics under the headship of this God. So, yes, it is also true, no doubt, and we're going to deal with this, that the Hebrew Bible contains not only reports of war and even claims of the divine command for war, and we'll deal with that at a later point in this study. But note now, just for now, note that within just a few centuries of those reports that we find in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, just a few centuries later, it would be Israel's own prophets who would be the ones who would begin to dream and speak uh, in beautiful form about a global peace that would come about, not despite this God as if he is some sort of incurable warmonger that we're going to have to ignore if we're going to achieve peace. But because of the embodiment of faith in this God, Abraham, the, uh, um, the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Micah would say, there is coming a day when the inhabitants of the earth will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be a day of a global, permanent peace because of the embodiment of the faith of this God. In other words, according to the Bible, Abrahamic monotheism entered the world as a rejection of imperialism, as a rejection of the use of force to make some men masters and other men slaves. That's the historical context and the reality. That's the revolutionary nature of what we see in Abraham in his time and culture. Think about it. Abraham. He is revered by, you know, 2.4 billion Christians, plus or minus. 1.6 billion Muslims, plus or minus, and 113 million Jews, give or take. Abraham himself, he never ruled an empire. He never commanded an army. Abraham never conquered a territory. He never performed a miracle or delivered a prophecy. Despite the fact that Abraham lived very differently than his neighbors, still he fought for his neighbor's safety and he prayed for his neighbor's well-being. In fact, we have in Genesis 18 an example of Abraham advocating with God on behalf of his neighbors who did not know God, did not follow the Abraham's God, did not obey Abraham's God, and yet Abraham is pleading with God for their well-being. And he says these stunning words, which really, I mean, I think out of context, you know, we might teach our children, don't you talk to God that way, right? What Abraham says to God is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Right? Like, live up to your own, you know, reputation and character. The reality is, is that while Abraham, while striving uh, to be true to his faith, he also strived to be a blessing to others regardless of their faith. That's the model, the paradigm, the pattern, the archetype of Abraham. And this reality has been ignored for far too long by far too many. In the simplest form, I guess we could say, to summarize what it means to be among those who inherit from Abraham, and that's who we are as Christians. To summarize all that, at least that aspect of Abraham's faith, it would be something like this. It's not our job to conquer the world. It's not our job to enforce uniformity of faith. Rather, 
It's our task, just like the task that God gave to Abraham, to be a blessing to the world. That's our task. And that's very different than seeing ourselves as the enforcer of uniformity of faith. And so, let me say it like this. The use of religion, in light of all this, the use of religion for political ends is not an act of righteousness. It is rather an act of idolatry. Every time. Every time. There's a quote you may have heard. Uh, sometimes you hear it. Um, it's better to be feared than to be loved. Anybody ever heard that? Raise your hand if you're joining us online. I see those hands. I see those hands. Okay. It's better to be feared to be loved. This is the creed of the terrorist and the suicide bomber. This quote didn't originate from Abraham or Moses or even Muhammad for that matter. This quote originated from Machiavelli. He was an Italian, well, I guess a, an Italian politician um, who became somewhat of a political scientist, I suppose. Um, and basically, the reason Machiavellian became an, an adverb or adjective, I guess the reason his name became synonymous with a, a certain thought pattern is because he overtly advocated and said that politics um, has always been and will always be conducted by means of deceit, treachery, and crime. And he said that political leaders should be excused for their crimes because a beneficial end for the politician's people can justify uh, malicious or even criminal means to get there. So with Machiavelli, the idea that the ends justifies the means creeps into our consciousness. And I just want to say, you don't find this kind of thinking in the faith of Abraham. To the contrary. In the faith of Abraham, it's the exact opposite. That the means actually is the end. Like the whole point is to live peaceably. Like peace is not a destination. Peace is a means of conveying and conducting oneself in life. And so to invoke God then to justify violence against the innocent is not an act of sanctity, but of sacrilege every time. It's a form of blasphemy. It's a, it's a way of taking God's name in vain. We get all this just from the front matter of what we now call the book of Genesis. And so I wanted to establish that at the outset really as kind of like maybe, maybe a plumb line or a touchstone to keep our, uh, keep our framework of thinking solid as we proceed into what is going to be some fairly dark waters as we proceed. So religious violence, what are we talking about? Well, of course, here in the U.S., uh, for the last, what's it been, 20 years since September 11th? Can you believe that? September 11th, 2001. Um, this, of course, is a time in our own culture where the not just religious violence as an abstract concept, but this brings, brings this phenomenon home to us in a very palpable, powerful, grievous way. And so since September 11, 2001, much has been written um, about religious violence, both in the abstract and in particular um, but that really serves as kind of a starting point. We, man, we could bounce around in, in history and, and around the world. And again, you don't need lots of examples of this. Um, but I think about another kind of subcategory or a pocket within um, religious violence. Um, those who, motivated by their faith in God, have bombed abortion clinics. Um, Reverend Michael Bray, for example, was is a Lutheran minister who bombed an abortion clinic, and of course, that's one among many. And now, for me, I just want to say, personally, um, after considering for a long time doing this study and putting it off and putting it off, what finally brought me to the point of saying, okay, we, we've, got to, we've got to talk about this, um, the events just a couple weeks ago, January 6th, here in the U.S. Capitol, where a violent mob, of course, we're all aware attacked and invaded the U.S. Capitol. Five people, I think, uh, have died as a result of that riot 
including one Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick is his name. He was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher by one of the rioters, and he died later that evening from his injuries. Um, and of course, many more were injured in the attack and in the mob. But with that, and we've discussed this before, but as the pictures and the video of this invasion and then the little sub-stories um, continue to stream in, it was disturbing to see the number of religious banners and signs and flags that were displayed by and among the violent mob. And furthermore, I don't know if you all heard this report, but there was one group um, who, once they arrived inside on the floor of Congress, they paused for a moment of, of prayer right there as they had violently pressed their way in, destroying human life along the way, pressed their way into the Capitol building, and they felt it important to have a moment of prayer where they thanked God for the victory that he had given them on that day. So it was in their minds anyway. So these events bring it right up to right now, right in our own backyard. And again, we're, we're thinking when we're talking about religious violence, we're thinking across the spectrum of faiths. But here in particular, here we have an instance of religiously motivated violence right here in our own religious backyard as well. These are Jesus professing Christians waving banners that Jesus saves as human life uh, is being threatened and in a couple cases destroyed. But we could go back further in time and, and geography and we could, we could talk about the Crusades. That too is um, uh, carried out by Christians, in that case against Muslims. We could talk about the Inquisition, the European wars of religion in the 16th and 17th century. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So we have all these examples. So, and uh, the reason I point that out is to kind of give you a, a perspective of how broadly we're trying to think. And then again, in particular, we're going to focus on violence within Christianity. Um, again, another piece that we need as we uh, try to move forward on this is we need to try to name the mindset that becomes capable of committing evil acts while invoking God, who is the author and giver of life. We, we need a name for that. Um, there's a great book, by the way, um, called The Nazi Conscience, uh, written several years ago by Claudia Kuntz. Um, and she shows consistently uh, and convincingly that both Hitler and his Nazi soldiers of the Third Reich, uh, many of whom were Christians, by the way, they actually believed that they were doing their nation and the world a great service um, by implementing the final solution, that is the extermination of the Jews. They were proceeding with what they perceived as an act of conscience. They were doing what they were doing because it was the right thing to do, in other words. That was their mindset. Um, more recently, some of you are familiar with the Muslim terrorist group Boko Haram. Uh, there was one report that a survivor of a massacre committed by this Islamist radical group Boko Haram, um, the survivor described to a reporter how the radicals calmly killed their fellow Muslims one by one. The survivor said, they told us they were doing God's work even though all the men in front of me were Muslim. They seemed happy he said. And actually, this is maybe a good time to kind of pause and just to suggest um, that really, in the final analysis, it's really only in fictional stories and in the comic books that the people who commit evil actually seem evil. That's actually a fictional uh, invention. The fact is that in real life, most of the time, those who commit evil actually sincerely believe that what they're doing is serving a noble cause. And so we need a name to encapsulate what we all kind of know what, what we're talking about. How can we describe this 
deadly phenomenon that can turn ordinary people, people who are not psychopathic, um, turn them into cold-blooded murderers of school children, people at prayer, people just going to work and doing their job in the Twin Towers, a policeman doing his duty at the U.S. Capitol. Um, how can we describe this phenomenon that can turn ordinary, even in many cases, in all likelihood, likable people into cold-blooded killers who are capable of this level of human carnage? Rabbi Sachs suggests a term. He describes it as altruistic evil. That is to say, evil that is uh, committed in a perceived sacred cause or evil that's committed in the name of high ideals. So we're talking about acts that are actually evil, but in the mind of the perpetrator, there's a sense of altruism, that I'm doing this for a greater good, for a greater end result, a greater cause, a higher ideal, a noble cause. I think it's a good phrase, and I'll be using it throughout this study. So just to be clear, we're not talking about behavior that people debate over in good faith, right? Like there's a legitimate conversation about maybe assisted suicide or uh, abortion perhaps, but we're not, we're not talking about complex issues like civilian casualties uh, in the process of conducting asymmetric warfare. Those are important questions, but I'm just saying that's, that's not we're, what we're talking about here. We're talking about the kinds of evil that everyone agrees is evil. Um, the killing of the innocent. Murder by terrorist attack or suicide bombing. That's just evil, plain and simple. Um, to kill someone because of their religion or because of their race or because of their nationality, um, it's evil, and we need to be able to say so. So when these kinds of um, actions are taken in the name of a higher ideal or a greater cause, this is where we're using the phrase altruistic evil. Now, I should say the focus of our study is going to be on the religious angle of all this, but just to kind of pause and say right here that there's nothing inherently religious about altruistic evil. We do, in fact, you know, find a great deal of overlap between religious extremism and those who commit altruistic evil, but religion itself is not an essential element in the mix. There have been and are other examples of altruistic evil committed by people who aren't religious at all or aren't particularly religious. And since I mentioned Hitler earlier, I have to say, Hitler himself was not a particularly religious person. Many of his soldiers were, but he himself wasn't. Um, we know of a great deal of evil that was carried out, for example, in Stalinist Russia. Of course, not uh, religious culture at all. And there are more examples of that. But our focus is on this overlap between religion and altruistic evil. That's the work we're going to do. So let me just give you a summary of the recent kind of public conversation about the question of the intersection of religion and violence. Like what is the connection between religion and violence? And again, this is a question that was brought to the fore by the events of September 11th, but the conversation preceded that, and I'm sure we'll continue um, after that. But a lot has been written since 2011. And there are three answers broadly that have been proposed. Uh, the first is this. Uh, religion is um, the major source of violence in the world. And so if we want a more peaceful world, what we need to do is get rid of religion altogether. This is the answer given by the group that's called the New Atheists. Um, Christopher Hitchens and, uh, and, and that group. Um, the second proposed answer that's kind of out there is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum that would say this, religion is not a source of violence at all, but people become violent because of fear and the pursuit of power. And yet these folks would say in the detail that, yeah, but at the same time, because religion can be used to inspire people to great acts of self-sacrifice and so on, in the result of that, manipulative leaders can seek to leverage uh, religion 
for that purpose uh, to, you know, inspire people for, you know, self-sacrifice, you know, in the name of a cause or whatever. But religion itself, these folks would insist, um, has nothing to do with violence. The third answer that's out there, when the question is posed, what is the connection between religion and violence? The third answer is, well, their religion is violent, yes, but our religion is not violent. Um, and I'm going to agree with Rabbi Sachs that, that, as stated, none of these are actually true and reliable ways of answering the question. Did you know there's such thing as an encyclopedia of wars? Apparently, it's a document or collection of documents, you know, bound documents, um, that seeks to, whether or not it's accurate or not, I, I can't know, but um, it seeks to document all of the known wars in all of human history. Um, and it uh, contains descriptions, record of 1,800 conflicts. I personally suspect there's more than that, but anyway, that's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an actual thing, an encyclopedia of wars. And so a group with this question about religion and violence uh, took just that document or set of documents, and they asked the question, among these 1,800 uh, wars that are documented in the encyclopedia of wars, how many of them actually have religion as their cause, as the impetus for war? And surprisingly, they found that only 10% of these wars involved religion at all. That's a surprisingly low number, I think, for many of them. Certainly would be surprising to Christopher Hitchens and his group. That's no doubt about it. Um, as far as answer number two, that would say, uh, you, know, there's no, you know, that there's no connection between religion and violence in itself. I, I, you know, I think we just have to say, wait a second, that, that's got to be, that's got to be overstated. Um, probably not a little bit, probably way overstated. I mean, when, when terrorists invoke holy war and define their battle as a struggle against Satan, um, condemning unbelievers to death, commit murder, all while declaring God is great. I mean, it really sounds in the end like nonsense to try to say that they are um, not acting on religious motives in some way, shape, or form. And I would say, again, um, the same kind of, hey, wait a minute, applies to those who invaded the Capitol here in the U.S., just a couple weeks ago, it was a violent mob. They beat one police officer to death. And at least part of that group, it was important for them to share a prayer in the middle of the house chamber. Clearly, these people, well, certainly we can say that their religion does not bridle or hold in check their violence. And I think we could even say further that in some way, shape, or form, they felt like their violence was in accord with their faith. Put another way, if, if, if a religion claims that it seeks peace, but only on its own terms, well, that's a recipe not for peace, but for indefinite war. Like, we're religion and we want peace, but it's got to be on our terms. Well, we're just right back to where we started, right? Um, and then as far as the third answer, their religion is violent, ours is not. Um, you know, this feels like a rehearsal of a very common human phenomenon that some call in-group bias, that it's natural for humans to always interpret my own group as preferable over, you know, other, other groups. So that is to say, when you really look at the historical record of violence, and I mean, it's not a competition, obviously, but if you really look at the record, I mean, Christianity historically doesn't fare any better than any of the world's religions in terms of um, religious Violence, And so all that to say, we're back to where we began. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all define themselves as a religion of peace. And yet they have all, we have all given rise to grievous violence at at least some points in our history. And so in this study, that was kind of, that was kind of big and broad. We're not really talking about world religions. We're talking about Christianity. And what is the connection between the Christian faith and acts of altruistic evil? And then more importantly, for, looking forward, what is the work we need to do in order to heal, self-correct? Let me give you one other 
kind of historical perspective. Um, like big picture background and context. In 1517, Martin Luther published his 95 Thesis. This began what we know of as the Protestant Reformation. And while there's a lot that we, you know, we think about the Reformation, um, we tend to think about the theological distinctions that emerged from the Protestant Reformation, things like justification by faith and so on. What we don't think about a lot is that um, the Protestant Reformation actually kick-started over a hundred years worth of war, war that rampaged all over Europe, um, known collectively as the European religious wars. So the question I just want to say, we want to fast forward through all that, and then the question I want to say is, what was it that stopped Catholics and Protestants from killing one another in the 17th century? It wasn't until the 17th century uh, that the wars ended, more or less. Um, and you can look up the details, but most historians would mark the end of the European religious wars. Most historians would mark the end of those wars uh, by what's known as the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. What did that treaty say? Again, you can look up the details, but what I want to emphasize for our purposes is that essentially what that treaty did is that it took power away from the church and basically invented what we know of today as the nation state with the balance of power. And so as a result of the Treaty of Westphalia and the reason the, the religious wars ended was because suddenly after that treaty, the church had no army to command. The church had no soldiers to command, no cannons, no guns. All of that was now placed under the authority and the auspices of the state. Essentially, that treaty brought about what we now know of, and this will be a later formulation of the same ideas, is that treaty brought about what we know of as a separation of church and state. Now, fast forward 400 years from that treaty to our day today. And suddenly what we see is that the world, and this is what September 11th brought to our consciousness unavoidably, was that the world is in fact becoming more religious, not less. Um, we wanted to believe in our culture that the world was becoming increasingly irreligious. And yet September 11th brought it to our attention, undeniably so, that the world is, has become more religious. We may not see it in our culture, but globally speaking, there is no doubt that the world is becoming more religious and not less. Around the world, there are more and more failed states these are states that are populated with growing populations of religious people. Did you know that globally speaking, um, as a general rule of thumb, irreligious cultures have a birth rate that is below replacement levels, whereas conversely, religious cultures uh, have a birth rate well above replacement level. So what that means is, if you fast forward that a decade, two decades, three decades, even with no evangelism, no conversion effort whatsoever, the world is going to become increasingly more religious, not less. It's not true in the U.S. or in most of Western cultures, but around the world, the birth rate far exceeds the rest of less religious or even irreligious cultures. In addition, here in the United States, at least in the last few decades, various religious groups are actively seeking to infiltrate the ranks of government. And so all of this means that the assumptions from 400 years ago no longer hold. 400 years ago, the assumption was peace will ensue if we take the power to kill away from the church and place it in the hands of government. That was the assumption 400 years ago. That assumption no longer holds. We can no longer assume that peace will ensue just because we've taken the power out of the hands of religion. Now, we have to look at religion itself. See, the essential task was basically avoided in the 17th century. This treaty that ended the religious wars, it achieved peace 
by taking power out of the hands of religious institutions. But the theology that led to the violence in the first place was basically ignored. Many explosive doctrines then have laid dormant for 400 years like frozen DNA. And the truth is, for at least 400 years, many people have known that many religious teachings and beliefs might be or sure to be harmful in many ways. But since power had been taken, broadly speaking, power had been taken out of religion, religious hands, there was assumed that there's little damage that these harmful teachings could do. And so the teachings themselves were left unscrutinized. Um, you think about, you know, the midway point of that 400-year span that we're talking about was our own civil war here in the United States. And Abraham Lincoln said it. Both sides in this conflict believe that God is on their side. The same thing was true in the European religious wars. Both sides believed that God was on their side and in accord with their violent, destructive actions. So what we're saying is the time has long since passed. We can no longer ignore this theological powder keg. We now have no choice but to re-examine the theology that leads to violence and violent conflict in the first place. If we fail to do the difficult work of rethinking our theology, then we can only expect the continuation of the kind of violence that has already marked our still very young century here. Um, no doubt around the world we'll still continue to try to stop the violence through the courts, through legislation, uh, through legal means, and even, unfortunately, through the deployment of the military. But to the extent that the violence is driven by toxic theology, it can only be stopped by means of theological rethinking. That's really kind of the whole point of this. So let me just say, I believe that Christianity is a religion of peace. Not just peaceful ends, but peaceful means. I believe that Jesus Christ really is the Prince of Peace, for real. Um, and I believe that he has called us to pursue peace by peaceful means. But what's clear is that not everyone interprets our religion in the same way. Clearly, there are, there are some who believe, at a minimum, that if Christianity is a peaceful religion, it at least can be used to justify unpeaceable means of pursuing what is claimed to be a peaceable end. I get it. Some Christians think that. Um, I know that the same can be said for both Judaism and Islam as well. There are many people in all of the Abrahamic faiths um, who know, that know their religion to be a religion of peace. And at the same time, there are practitioners of those faiths as well who interpret their religion differently. That is, to include justifiable violence. But the truth is, put all together, none of these three religions can say, our hands have never shed innocent blood. In fact, we all have at one or another point in our history. Um, and so we have to then prepare ourselves to ask and answer some hard questions. And these are the kinds of questions that we're going to focus on over the next few weeks. Does the God of Abraham want his disciples to kill for his sake. Does the God of Abraham demand human sacrifice? Does the God of Abraham rejoice in holy war? Does the God of Abraham want for us to hate our enemies and terrorize those who we deem to be unbelievers? Does the God of Abraham require that we hate his enemies as an expression of our devotion to him? Have we read our sacred texts accurately? Have we read our sacred texts in a way that promotes the well-being of humanity? 
And what is God saying to us here and now? I know that, well, some people think I'm a nerd. But I'm very excited about this study. We're going we're gonna to look into the, um, the mentality, the mindset um, of really kind of a cascading set of thought processes that kind of unfold and converge into what we're describing here as altruistic evil, uh, some of which is theological, some of which is sociological, um, some of which is just, you know, dark human impulses that are common to all of us uh, uh, left unchecked. Um, so we're going to look at that side of it. We're going we're gonna to go back through the origin stories of the Abrahamic faith. That's what Genesis means. We're going to go back through the story of Genesis. These stories, which are obviously stories of sibling rivalry, first between the sons of Abraham and then between, between the sons of Isaac and then and so on. There's sibling rivalry all throughout these origin stories, even, even the story of Rachel and Leah. We're going to look at all those stories and, um, and we're going to see what I think will be a refreshing rereading, right? Because some of these stories, you know, uh, these stories have been used to, to create an in-group and an out-group. We're the in-group because we're the ones favored by God. We're God's favorite. Y'all are the ones that God rejected and therefore cursed and therefore less than human and therefore less valuable and therefore, here we go, let's duke it out, right? So, that, I mean, there's a whole cascading thought process there that has come from a particular reading of these origin stories. And so, again, following with Rabbi Sachs, we're going to go back through a rereading of those stories and see, I think, some surprising and refreshing and ultimately uh, very humane takeaways from those very same texts. And so, it's going to be a fun ride. I hope that you'll um, enjoy it with us and look forward to it um, with us, okay? Let me pray for you. Pray a blessing, and then we'll be, we'll be dismissed. Father.